If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We are working our way through First uh, John. Uh, today we'll be in First John in chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. Feel free to grab one. And uh, let me pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, king Jesus, this is your day. You are the king of all things. You are ruler and sovereign. You hold up the universe by the word of your power. And so we with confidence can say out loud, please help us today. We, we with confidence can reach out to you as your children and say, Lord, help us to know you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to love others more. Help us to be more committed to your word. Help us to live in the wake of the reality of your gospel more. Help us to love more. Help us to understand how loved we are more. And Jesus, we come to you with empty hands asking for more. Because we don't bring things to the table. You lavish your grace upon us. And so I pray today you would lavish your grace upon us, Lord. Um, help me as we open this text uh, to see what you have to say to us today. Uh, and the things that are just of me, Lord, may they be forgotten. But the things that bring you glory and the things that are eternal and the things that bring us right joy, Lord, light those things up in our heart, not just for this moment, but for this week and for our lives. Help us as we again and again return not to the ABCs that are the gospel, but the A to Zs of Christianity that is the gospel. Help us to appreciate your cross and resurrection, your rule and your reign and your ultimate restoration more and more. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, today we're asking a very basic question. What is a Christian? Now, why would we ask such a question? This is, this is a church gathering. We are here you probably know what a Christian is, is what we could assume. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one, we have to be able to evaluate claims that, that other people make about being Christians. Uh, I was watching a film. Uh, it was a documentary that I ended up turning off, so I won't give you the name of the film. But it was interesting. In this film, uh, one of the gentlemen in this film said, um, who, who just clearly, from the way he treated others and from the way he treated um, Christians and, and all of these different things, clearly was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm a Christian. I do more Christian things than the average Christian. I take care of my neighbors better than the average Christian. Uh, I'm more moral than the average Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. Well, how do we even evaluate a statement like that? Uh, Karl Rahner is regarded, and I'm not saying this of him, but is regarded uh, as one of the great, particularly Catholic theologians of the 20th century. Now, Karl Rahner uh, has a theory that we don't talk about a lot, but has really worked its way out into a sort of mainstream Christianity. That's that of the anonymous Christian. And he's going to say that there are people who have never professed faith in Jesus Christ and even could be adamantly against Jesus Christ, but by their live are actually living in the wake of the grace and mercy of God and are in fact Christians even though they don't know it. Well, how do we even evaluate a statement like that? How do we evaluate a statement when a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness says, yeah, I'm a Christian, if we don't know what a Christian is? And sometimes if we're not careful, we have these things that we assume, uh, but if we don't know, uh, how can we even take it apart? How can we look at it? How can we think about it? And I think it's also really important for us as the people of God, because there are times, and maybe this isn't you, and maybe this isn't today, but for some people, and maybe you'll be walking with someone and helping them follow Jesus who are walking through this, when people say things like, I'm just not sure if I'm a Christian. I'm not sure if I'm in. I'm not sure if I'm in the kingdom. And I'm not even talking about people who are questioning the faith itself. I'm talking about them questioning their own salvation. Well, how, 
Jesus is so good and I'm so bad and I just don't know. Maybe you've never been there, but if you haven't, I'm sure you will at some point in time in your Christian life encounter someone who is. So how do you look that person and say, well, of course you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course you're a Christian if you yourself can't answer what a Christian is. Now I think John here for us um, gives us a lot of that information and a lot of that that truth. And so it's both for us as we can evaluate the world, but also so we can reassure ourselves who we actually are in Christ. <clears throat> now, as you may have noted, uh, when we started John, 1 John doesn't start like a lot of the letters. If you read the letters in the Bible, they say things like, dear so-and-so from Paul to Rome and this other thing. They have this very clear, oh, it's a letter because he said, dear so-and-so, and I know it's a letter. Even 2,000 years ago, it's still a letter. Uh, John has saved his sort of personal address here to the second chapter, starting in verse 12. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at these three verses and try and ask the question, what is a Christian? Okay, so verse 12, chapter 2, 1 John. That was the exact opposite order in which you would do an address. So we're at 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 is where we are. Um, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now, you're going to notice he's going to use these, he's going to say things like little children. He's going to say fathers. He's going to say young men. Then he's going to say children, fathers, and young men again. Um, he's getting very, very personal. Again, this is John. He's writing to a church, probably from Ephesus. He is very old, somewhere between 90 and 95, and he's an old, old man. And he's writing this letter to this church, both to help correct some problems they're having, but also to encourage them that they are people who are in Christ. They are Christians. They know the good news of the gospel. They are people that have received the reality that God himself came for them, died on the cross to forgive them for their sins. This is where we get the amazing line when he says, it's not that you love God first, but that God loved you and sent his son. This is the reality. This is where we get this, is 1 John. Uh, that these are people who have experienced the truth and reality of who Jesus is. These are people who have experienced the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are people who have had their sins forgiven by him. These are people who have been made right with God by his grace and mercy. And just like many Christians, they need to be reassured of that reality and reminded of the implications of what that actually means for the rest of their life. Because there are implications there. So I'm writing to you little children because your sins are for, forgiven for his namesake. If you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's a little bit better translation where it says, through his name. So uh, uh, just a tip on reading your Bible. Name, the idea of name, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that's like the person. Name is highly, uh, has a high, high, high referent. It's highly symbolic of the person himself. So this could be really, and I think the Holman even says, through the name of Jesus, which they throw in there so you know we are clear. You are forgiven through the name of Jesus, which means through the person, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes you right with God? Jesus. What can you do to earn God's love? Nothing. Who did it? Jesus. When we lose this in our heart and in our mind, we start trying to do stuff so God will love us. 
And we miss the fact that absolutely everything we get to do because of Jesus starts with the fact that he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He's forgiven you more than you can possibly reckon and comprehend. And that the good news of the gospel is that you are a recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ and get to live your life, which you're now given in Christ, in response to that truth. And we have to say it. I mean, if you've been part of our church for any amount of time, you will notice that I say something in and around this truth every week. Because it's slippery. It gets away from us so quickly. And all of a sudden, our righteousness is about how much you read your Bible or how much you pray. Read your Bible. I'm pleading with you. Read your Bible. Pray. You have full access to the God of the universe through His Word and through prayer. But we don't do that to earn His love. We do that because we are loved. Sins are forgiven through his name. So go with me to Mark, chapter 2. This would have been, well, I'll just read it and you'll see. It'll explain itself. It's very controversial. Uh, So we're in Mark, chapter, and I'm sorry, it's not on the screen today. Uh, Sermon edit, 6 a.m. Here we go. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, Mark, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days that him is Jesus, uh, it was reported that he was at home. So he's at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. Jesus is coming. Let's go check it out. Now, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, that's someone who's paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they couldn't get in uh, near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down to which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, which is a sermon for another day, uh, he said to the paralytic this very, very powerful thing, which we have to be careful, doesn't become just Christian nomenclature, and we miss the radical thing that's happening here. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, so guys who study the word, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's true. That's true. There's only one who can make you right, and that's God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they had questioned with it. You always know they're in trouble when that happens. When any gospel writer gives you the note, and he picked up on something that they weren't exactly putting down, and Jesus is about to say something, you're like, oh, it's not going to go well for them. Uh, within themselves, uh, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take you to your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Did you pick up on that? That it's harder and a bigger deal that his sins are forgiven and not that he got up and walked. And in fact, it's radically more significant for the life of the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. And right now, as we speak, that forgiven man, as far as I can tell from God's word, is before the throne of God with him forever. Not paralyzed. Just like everybody else is before the throne of God forever. Forgiven, healed, restored. Uh, Go with me to one of my favorite books, the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. So it's Hebrews chapter 10. We're in verse 15. Uh, 
Hebrews 10.15. So Hebrews 10.15 says this. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Amazing. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Regardless of what baggage you bring into your life with Jesus, he remembers your sins and lawless deeds no more. Does this mean the omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe doesn't know what happened? It's not total recall. God doesn't do total recall. I heard they made another one. All my references are from when I was too little watching a movie that I should have been watching. Thanks, Dad. Um, I digress. Right? But that's how distant and far your sins are from you. He doesn't look at you, Christian, and see your sin. He looks at you and sees the completed work of Jesus on your behalf. That's reality. This is what it is to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who has had their sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. You can't earn it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Now, hear the implication. This is you. And if you don't know Jesus, this can be you through Jesus towards God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way He opened for us through a curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have great a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. When the heat is on, do not let go of Jesus. Do not let Him go. We live in a time and a place where the pressure is on. The heat is up. Jesus. Don't let go. Don't waver. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's why. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you say the, see the day drawing near, let us be together. Why? Because you and I, you and I, need to be reminded by other believers who Jesus is and who they are. That you have been washed clean. Why is John writing to them? Because your sins have been forgiven, which means you have access to God through the person of Jesus Christ. All right, back to John. Because your sins are forgiven. What is it to be a Christian? To have your sins forgiven through Jesus. What does he say? I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. John loves this motif. John loves this idea. John loves the preeminence of God. John loves the preeminence of Jesus. John chapter 1, we looked at it. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. He's leaning on Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, right? He's, he's leaning on those things so you know the order of things. That we don't have access to something new. We have something that's more than old. Right? 
That freaks us out. Um, in dealing with how can God be sovereign over all things, Augustine, in the 300s-ish, some have credited him, by the way, for this as being the father of quantum physics. That might be a stretch. But it sounds neat. Um, Augustine threw out there for the first time, as far as anyone can tell, maybe time's created. Maybe God made everything, even time. Maybe the reason we have time is because God made time. And so God's outside of time. This one we know, Jesus Christ, is God who's existed before outside of time, outside, before outside of, outside of time. And then we move on because that's crazy. No, that's not crazy. It's wonderful. It's just hard to comprehend. But I think the thing we need to know here is that we're talking about the real Jesus. Jesus who is God. You cannot be a Christian and not know that Jesus is God. He who is from the beginning. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus being God himself, the second member of the Trinity, pre-incarnate, and outside of time, period. That's it. I am writing to you, young men. And again, I think he's being inclusive of the whole church. He's using these variety of titles. I think what he's talking about here is, is everybody. Um, and a lot of people have a lot of different things. What is John doing here exactly? I think at the end of the day, he's trying to talk to everybody. This is applicable to everybody. Because not just the children have had their sins forgiven, and not just the fathers know who's from the beginning, right? I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, we will talk at length as we get into three and four about Satan and malevolent spiritual forces. As Christians, we believe these things are real. Uh, they are a real part of life as Christians. But we also know this. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. In verse 8, Paul says this. So we're in Colossians. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to get better at when I do the Bible drill, especially if it's not on the screen, telling you where we actually are. We're in Colossians. We're in chapter 2, and we're starting verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. This word is a fascinating word that I don't have enough time to nerd out on, but it's the word you use for the ABCs. The elemental spirits, the ABCs. The basics of what human beings, apart from God, think is good, right, etc., etc., in the world. It can also be used for these sort of elemental spirits, the basic building blocks, kind of in pagan thinking, so it's a label for demons, of the world, and not according to Christ. So just like John, there's going to be, for lack of a better world, there's, there's an opposition here. The things that are against God, the things that are for God, right? For in him, who's him? Jesus. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, little, I don't know what you call the thing, the line that's the little thing that when you forget to put a word in your paper, your teacher puts that line, that little horrible triangle, and you're like, oh, yes. Triangle could say, and you, anchor church, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Anchor church, in him, it's not here, I'm throwing it in there so you get it. In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. This is why we immerse, baptizo. It's why baptism's by immersion. It's a symbol, it's the reality that if you are a Christian, 
You have died with Jesus. When did I die with Jesus? I don't remember that. When you became a Christian, your life was attached to his life. You died with him on that cross. That old you died on that cross with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now, there's, that's sort of inaugurated. That's part and parcel. In reality, at some point in time, you'll actually be risen in the resurrection. And that'll be also very awesome in a sermon for another day. But symbolically, who you were, symbolically, spiritually, it's probably a better word than symbolically, who you were is dead. Who you are is in Christ. And again, so you don't go to the DMV and get a new license uh, you know, you still like pizza or not like pizza. You know, you're, you're not at Sushi Land and you get a different kind of favorite sushi now that you know Jesus, right? Still like the old stuff. But you're radically and fundamentally changed. Changed enough that the Bible again and again is going to say, that old guy's dead. And now there's a new guy there. With him in baptism, and in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Are you getting a sense that this is all over the Bible, by the way? I hope so. By canceling the record of debt. Remember, he's remembering our sins and lawless deeds no more. That was Hebrews. It's not even Paul writing, right? This is a consistent Christian message. Debt. Record of what you did. Gone, torn up, destroyed, paid, really is the best way to think of it, paid by Jesus. This stood against us with its legal demands. Why does it have legal demands? Because God is good and doesn't sweep stuff under the rug. Someone had to pay the debt. You couldn't afford it. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay it. Now you're forgiven and loved. Did I mention we're talking about the being overcoming the evil one here. See how, this, see how this all weaves together? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. Here's our verse that we're actually looking for. Colossians is really hard because you can't just get the one verse. You have to get the whole thing. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. God has defeated Satan in the person of Jesus Christ. It's inaugurated. Right? He's as good as defeated. He still, like Peter will tell us in chapter 5 of 1. See, I go in backwards. I go backwards all the time. 1 Peter chapter 5, in the middle, he's going to tell us Satan is running around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Satan wants to devour people. But as Christians, we know the truth. And what's that truth? It's not for me to beat Satan. Good luck. Right? He's very old, malevolent, supernatural stuff. I couldn't beat Satan. So I've got Jesus. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the one who does it. That's why if you ever hear anybody kind of getting funky with spiritual warfare, as it's called, stuff, with demonic stuff, return to what the Bible says. See what the Bible says about it. Yeah, flee from Satan and he will run from you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it's not real. I mean, it's real. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan does hate you. Satan does want you to die. It's true. However, 
We know that what we have is Jesus. And as Colossians is telling us, those things have no rights on us. That's why Paul can say, see to it that no one takes you captive. Don't get captured. Turn to Jesus. You have to go. I'm staying with Jesus. I'm going to believe the Bible. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe what he says about me because really so much of it comes down to are just very simple lies. You're not who God says you are. You're not enough of this. You're not enough of that. You're too much of that. You come back to reality. You come back to what the Bible says about who Jesus is, what he has done, and how this works out. But here's the reality, right? I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, John's going to talk about this more at length. How is it that we overcome? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. This is fundamental. You are a Christian because Jesus lives inside of you, right? So again, how, what is a Christian? One who's had his sins forgiven. Um, one who knows who the real Jesus is. One who is no longer in the clutches of Satan. This is who you are now. And again, we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks uh, in three and four. I write to you children because you know the Father. A Christian is somebody who knows God. Here's the trick with John. Trick, trouble. This is simple in English. This is simple in Greek. He's saying simple things that are unbelievably profound. You know God. You know the Father. Go with me to John, not first John, but John, in chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, so these are believers, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Which is actually kind of funny when you look at biblical history. You're like, hmm, I'm going to get technical there. Kind of exile. Syrians, Babylonians, Persians. Persians, not really enslaved to the Persians. Babylonians, though, for sure. But, hey, Jesus has a bigger point, so he doesn't really call him out on that. But here we go. 33. They answer him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. True. We become enamored with um, the right things, the wrong reasons, so that people might praise us or think we're awesome. People might tout us or like us or write blogs about us. Yay, everybody loves me because I'm awesome. And it's really addictive and then it stops. And you're like, why won't you keep writing things about me? Why won't this thing happen? Come on, give me some attention, right? Come on. Or, or just plain and simple addiction. Addiction is addictive, right? Even when you want to let it go, it still has you. 
And, and as we've said a million times, and I'll keep saying because you need to hear it, that if we're not careful, if it's not repentance, if it's not turning from sin and turning to Jesus, particularly in the realm of addiction, if I spend my whole life thinking about the thing that I'm addicted to but not doing it, and it's all about spiritual push-ups and I'm white-knuckling it, and I'm not doing it because that's what Christians don't do, and I'm a Christian, I don't sin, so I'm not going to sin. <sighs> that's exhausting. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we turn from the enjoyment of sin to the enjoyment of Jesus. We're empowered by Him. We reach out to Him. We call out to Him. Help me, please. I need help. We reach out to His people. Help me. I'm in a horrible way. We need help namely from God. The slave does not remain in the house. I'm in 35, so I'm in John chapter 8. I'm in 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, Christian, if Jesus Christ has set you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. He's saying, yes, ethnically speaking, correct, you are in with Abraham. Yet you want to kill me because you don't like me, therefore we have a problem here. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's about to get a little bit um, sharp with them. They, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. When Jesus says this, he means this quite literally, of course. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If someone knows God, they love Jesus. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. When Jesus says that, that hurts. And you will, and you will, and you will, what? And your will, there we go, thank you. Someone's helping. Your will is to do your father's desires. He, will mur he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Our job, church, is not to make the gospel of Jesus as sugar-coated and palatable as possible. I would also say it's not our job to be jerks about it, okay? So don't hear that, oh, not sugar-coated, so we got to be a jerk about it. No, don't be a jerk, but I'm telling you, this is the Bible. You tell people the truth of the gospel. That involves things like you're a sinner, you need to be saved, right? Having the gospel without telling someone they're a sinner and that they need to be saved. I'm not sure what kind of gospel that is. I'm not, honestly, as a sinner who's been saved. I'm not even sure what kind of good news that is, to be totally frank. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not believe them is that you are not of God. How do we know the Father? Through Jesus. So we know our Christian because our sins have been forgiven through Jesus. 
What is a Christian? It's one who knows him who is from the beginning, the real Jesus. Uh, a Christian is one who has overcome the evil one. He's rejected the dominion of darkness and lives in the kingdom of God. Because you know the Father, he goes on, 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Something you'll notice about John, which is something we kind of lose when we do this thing line by line, he has a tendency to repeat himself. Um, that's likely because he's Semitic in his thinking. Um, he's Semitic in his sentence structure, even. Uh, Hebrew's based on verbs and nouns. Good Greek has participles. Those are I-N-G words, right? Uh, he writes Greek like, like a Jewish man, which he was, interestingly enough. Um, but he writes Semitically. And, and one of the things is one of the flavor of Semitic language is, is coming back around, specifically if something is important. And so he's going to say two things that he said before, but right in the middle of those two things, he's going to say something new. And so we won't spend a lot of time on the two things he said before, but we will look at them, but we'll spend our time on what is new. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in you because you are strong. What makes us strong? It's not he who's in the world, but he's in me. It's Jesus that makes me strong. And the word of God abides in you. A Christian believes the Bible. A Christian believes the word. A Christian believes what God has said. John chapter 5, verse 30. Again, it's not on the screen, so it's John chapter 5, verse 30. We're going to go negative, negative example, positive example, okay? That's what they say, you know, if you have to, you have to talk to someone, you give them three positives and negative. We'll flip it around, we'll do a negative and then a positive, because I'm more of the, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news? I'll take the bad news. So here we go. Uh, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now he's talking about God here. Right? And then he's going to talk about John the Baptist for a second here. You sent, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Another witness. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. Well, how are we going to get saved? Tell us, Jesus. He was, a, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So John was pointing to Messiah, Jesus, and his coming. He's the one who's making straight the paths. But the testimony that I have is greater than the works of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I think this is everything Jesus does in his life. Death, burial, and resurrection included, but also the miracles. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. How, Jesus? Tell us. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Okay. And you do not have, and you do not have his word abiding in you. You want to hear the voice of God? Open your Bible and read it. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness about me. This is the same as Luke 24. The whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus, the King, and His kingdom coming. We have to be careful. Sometimes I think that we can go, God made everything good. I can go this way too. And if I'm not careful, we miss something in the middle. If you simply say the story of God is that God made everything good, we broke it, Jesus came to fix it, which is true. And if you have to say it in 30 seconds or less, like you might if you're standing in a pulpit, pulpit from time to time, you have to learn how to say these things very quickly, right? Very quickly. Because I can't spend 15 minutes every Sunday unpacking the whole story as much as I might try. God made everything good, we broke it, Jesus came to fix it, he's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. That's true. If we're not careful, what's the problem there? We miss about 78% of the Bible that happens as God promises to send that one and God works through Abraham's family, as God works through Israel, as God works through the people of God, as God works through the prophets to bring about his son, Jesus Christ, to save everybody who believe. Okay. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. One way to life, his name's Jesus. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Why? I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. Ooh. I'm the Messiah, is what Jesus is saying, and somebody else could come and say they're the Messiah, which did happen not 50 years or more at Barcoba. Also, I have to make a correction. I said a couple of weeks ago, that the name of Judea was changed to Palestine uh, in 70 AD. I was wrong. That was a misquote on my part. It happened in the Barcoba Rebellion, which is a few years later, the second great revolt. Just want to correct myself because I said it wrong. And then you're telling people, did you know that in 70 AD? And they're like, no, that's not true. Where'd you hear that? They're like, oh, Andrew Peck said so. Oh, good. Because <laughs> you talk about these things at cocktail parties, right? The, the first and second great revolts. Uh, but at Barcoba, the guy comes, and he, they at least say, this guy seems like Messiah. And it's hard from the records because they're spotty, but it seems that he at least doesn't say, nah, you got to stop. Right? Yeah, maybe. It's kind of more his approach. Which is the same for Holly Celesi when he shows up in Jamaica with the Rastafarians. They think he's the second coming of Christ. And as far as I can tell from the record, he never says no. He never says, yes, absolutely, that's me. But he's like, <laughs> but I digress. Um, and then I lose my place. And then we're here. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from uh, the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you. Moses. So whenever you see something like Moses, especially in the New Testament, but even in the Bible, that's the first five books. That's the Torah. That's the Pentateuch, the five books. Moses is shorthand for those five books, the first five books of your Bible. On whom you have set your hope. If, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is after the Bible. Jesus is after them, having the word abiding in them. God's verbal self-expression counts. 
As far as the Bible's concerned, you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe God's word. Go with me to uh, our last, last place on the tour. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 in verse 12. Put on then. So we've taken off the old man and we're putting on the new. This is what it looks like to live as a Christian. Put on then as God's chosen ones. You're chosen by him. Church, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, uh, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. It's based in the gospel. The forgiveness we have for each other is based on the reality that when I have a problem, when I have a problem with someone else, when I'm having trouble forgiving them, I need to stop for just a moment and remember how much the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven me. And all of a sudden, whatever they've got on me is nothing. Okay, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Church. And be thankful. Now here's how we do it. Well, how do I get after that? Because that all sounds awesome. Verse 16. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You know you're a Christian because your sins are forgiven. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, because our sins are forgiven through his name. You know you're a Christian, what it means to be a Christian, because you know him who is from the beginning. You know the real Jesus. Because the reality is in Christ, you have overcome the evil. And really, in many ways, Jesus Christ has overcome the evil one on your behalf. Because you know the Father, the real God. Because you know Him who is from the beginning. Because you are strong. Because you have Christ Jesus. Because the Word of God abides in you. You have heard the truth of God's holy Word and believed it. This means your life. When these things are true of you, these things all come through the Gospel. And your life is a monument to that Gospel. Your life as a Christian is a monument to the good news and the forgiveness and the life given by Jesus Christ. When we don't believe this, when we don't believe this is a description for a Christian, we think Christian is the guy who puts on his Sunday best and shows up and doesn't cuss and is a nice person. You can do all those things to be a Christian, by the way. I'm not, I'm not sure. There's also the disconnect somewhere in time where we kind of stopped liking the guy who wears a tie. To church. Anyone wearing a tie? I don't think anyone's wearing a tie today, so I can pick on that person. It's always awkward if you say that and there's someone right in the front like, oh, geez. You could wear a tie and be a Christian. You could put on your Sunday best and be a Christian. But putting on your Sunday best does not make you a Christian. We can be just as against that guy, right? I think in Seattle, we're like, oh, we're in Seattle and we don't wear ties. Well, now we wear ties because ties are cool and people like bow ties and beards and things, whatever. Now someone's got a beard. Now I've offended somebody. And now I have to move awkwardly along with my time. It's not the things you do that makes you a Christian. And we default to that so quickly. Don't. Don't. When you start thinking about, am I a Christian? Well, you know, I wore a tie the other day. I didn't wear a tie and I'm in Seattle. It's cool. 
No. You've been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe his word. You know the Father. So what do we do with all this? We respond. We live. This is a life you've been given. This is the life you've been handed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now live in it. Walk in it. Breathe it. Enjoy it. Towards him, this, this stuff should make us worship him more. All these things are true of you, not because of what you've done. Your sins have been forgiven. You know the Father. You are strong. That You've overcome the evil one. His word abides in you. You didn't do that. He did that on your behalf. Let's worship. For me, that makes me want to follow him more and love him more and know him more. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Because he's afforded me that luxury through his cross and through his blood. And for us as the people of God, how much should this help us want to give our lives to help other people, other Christians, know and love Jesus more and know and love others more? When we stop for just a moment and think how much he has loved us and given us, and to our city who doesn't know him, how much should this encourage us to tell them? To tell them the truth. This is forgiveness of sins. This is knowing God in all of his glory. This is the beautiful reality. This is three verses out of John. That's amazing to me. And we could just keep going. Because all of these things, all of these things are in what's called the perfect tense. And in Greek, there's a particular thing that does. It's something that happened in the past that has ongoing results. You weren't just forgiven in the past in a vacuum. You were forgiven, and that has ongoing results in your life. You know the Father. You know who is from the beginning. That has ongoing results in your life. The Word abides in you, and that has ongoing results in your life. It's not sealed away in some Tupperware somewhere in the past of your life. It is now, so we get to stand up in a moment and sing to the living God who has forgiven us, who continues to forgive us, for His forgiveness that continues to move in our lives. He continues to give us life. His Word continues to abide in us. We continue to know Him. We continue to know His Son. Friends, that's a lot to sing about. In a moment, we'll transition to communion. And we, when we take this cup, um, logistically what we're looking at is regular bread and gluten-free bread and uh, wine and juice and a basket for the offering. We come and take this because we're Christians. We come and take this because our sins have been forgiven. This is for you because your sins have been give, forgiven through the blood and the death of Jesus. And so that's a celebration. That happened 2,000 years ago. That happened in your life when you met Him, even if you met Him today, and that continues to have ongoing results in the rest of your life. And so we take this as a celebration, as forgiven, blood-bought people who know the Father, who know Him who is from the beginning, and we celebrate. And we stand up and we sing as forgiven, loved people whose God word, whose the Word of God abides in. And so in a moment, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing. And we're going to celebrate as the people of God because we have much to celebrate. Let me pray for us. Jesus, You are God Almighty. You are the one who's forgiven us, who's saved us, who's redeemed us, who's restoring us, who will restore us. We are Christians. A simple question. What is a Christian? We are Christians. Why? Because of you, Jesus. That's why. Help us, Lord. Your word abides in us. Grow that in us. May we hunger and thirst for your word more every day. 
May we hunger and thirst for you more every day. May we hunger and thirst to respond to your good news and love others and proclaim the truth more every day. And may we do these things for your glory, empowered by your spirit, for your namesake. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.